We're in um, the book of Titus, as you know, we're in the book of Titus, and we are going to read the first ten verses of uh, chapter two. So Titus, chapter two, commencing at verse one, and Paul is writing, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, in all respects, to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. This is the word of the Lord. Next week we will read, Lord willing, that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, indeed for all kinds of people. When the grace of God appears, it does bring salvation. Yes, from the penalty of sin, we rejoice in that. It It brings salvation from the penalty of sin. But not only that, of course, the gospel is not just something that is at the start of the Christian experience. The gospel is a message throughout the Christian experience, because it's a message of salvation from the power, and then finally, the presence of sin. The grace of God enables the believer to live in a way that pleases God and is probably opposite to the prevailing culture. Timothy is writing, uh, Paul is writing to Titus in Crete. And a summary of the people in Crete. Uh, is quite unfavourable, uh, but given in verse 12 of chapter 1, isn't it? I'm sure there are notable exceptions, but Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. So Cretan culture uh, was predominant of a lack of truthfulness, 
there were lies around. People would lie to get their own way to facilitate whatever they wanted. Lying. Uh, they would do evil in God's sight. What well, things that were evil in God's sight that wouldn't be a problem in in Crete. That would be the, the, the behaviour. Uh, and they would be lazy gluttons. They wouldn't necessarily be working hard at things, and they would be controlled by their passions and by their appetites. So there is life in Crete in general. Maybe you think it sounds like 21st century Scotland. I don't know. But it does show us, doesn't it? As we, we sometimes say, you know, living as a Christian is difficult uh, in this day and age. Well, the scriptures bring before us quite clearly again tonight that living as a Christian has always been difficult. And it was certainly difficult in first century Crete. Not only was that the prevailing culture, but we've thought about in in recent times how these believers, and none of them was more than 30 years as a believer, probably most of them much less than that, um, the, these believers have been exposed to false teachers who were insubordinate, they were empty talkers, they were deceivers, they were filled with shameful greed, and they had defiled consciences. So life certainly wasn't easy if you were a believer in first century Crete. But as amidst that culture then, that Paul exhorts Titus to instruct the believers that they must think and behave differently. There would be a pressure on them to conform to the culture, to compromise on God's standards, be complacent perhaps in striving to be godly. But these all all must be resisted. All must be resisted and godliness pursued. And as we'll think about it tonight, godliness, holiness, will be seen in daily living. And we need to emphasise this tonight, because we're going to go through a lot of commands and imperatives and all things like that. Lots of commands and good moral living. But godliness and holiness can only be truly enabled by trusting in God and dependence on the indwelling Holy Spirit. An individual's active pursuit of holiness befitting a person who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it isn't a question of let go and let God. But it is a question of trust God and work hard. Work hard for holiness. And so as we go through that, let's be, let's be very clear that all that is being instructed... By Timothy, uh, I don't know why I keep saying Timothy, that's twice now in five minutes. By Titus is dependent on someone being a Christian and the Holy Spirit is working in them and through them. And so we've started. But Paul says to Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine. With teaching that is in accordance with with sound doctrine. It's not the instruction to teach sound doctrine. Of course, Titus would teach sound doctrine. But what he is to teach, and we'll think about what teach means in a minute, is what springs, what behaviour comes out. So you've been taught sound doctrine. So what is the result of that? 
As you've been taught the truth about God, the truth about salvation, the truth about who you are, your identity in Christ, what is the result of that? It's the sort of, so what then? So what? I am a Christian. I am in Christ. I have the indwelling Holy Spirit. So what? Well, this in part answers that question, the so what? I like how uh, J.P. Phillips does it in his paraphrase, translation. This is how he speaks in verse 1, or writes rather. He says, now you must tell them the sort of character which should spring from sound doctrine. The sort of character that should spring from sound doctrine. And when Titus is exhorted to teach, that indeed can be formal teaching, but that word is often used, and perhaps most often used, in uh, everyday conversation going around. So it's not just the formal teaching, maybe the preaching, as we would call it, of God's word, but it is that normal everyday conversation between believers, that instruction as well. The outworking of doctrine. And it will have an impact. And there's five separate groups we're going to quickly look at tonight. Five groups with specific commands relative to them. So it's the older men, it's the older women, it's the younger women, younger men, and then bond servants. Now I wouldn't want you to switch off and just think I'll come back in when it's my time then. Uh, Because as we'll be aware, of course... Um, you might not think you're an older man yet, and I guess if you're 20 or 30, you're, I'll, I'll agree with you. Okay, I'll agree with you there. But let me tell you this, when you blow out the candles on your 50th bir- at your 50th birthday party, you don't all of a sudden become dignified. You don't all of a sudden become that. That's something that's got to be worked upon. Okay. So the older men have specific characteristics that they should have, but they will have been developed over many years, we trust as well. And so likewise for the older women, younger women scenario, bond servants can apply to anyone, of course, of any age. So it's really Christian living in an ungodly culture is what we're thinking about. And so first of all, it is the older men. And if you're a little bit sort of thinking, am I in that category or not specifically, we're probably talking around 50 plus. Okay. But let's not switch off if you're under 50 or you're a lady. Qualities that should be older men as they have matured in faith. And now remember, the most, the longest anyone could have been a Christian indwelt by the Holy Spirit is about 30 years because this letter is written around in the 60s, Pentecost being around um, 35, 33 AD. And so there were Cretans at Pentecost, we know that. Paul stopped a little while at Crete. He wished to stop longer on that journey. They said they should have done that winter journey. Remember, then there was a shipwreck. Um, but that's all we know really about Crete. First of all, though, to be sober minded. Sober minded. Older men who are there in the assembly should be clear thinking. They're able to govern themselves and not be swayed around all here and there of all different types of thinking. They, when all sorts of philosophies and opinions and talk is given, they should have a clarity of mind 
to take things in, to judge what is good, to judge what is bad, and have resulting, of course, good judgment on matters. They're not to be carried along with the latest fads and crazes just for the sake of popularity or for the sake of being liked. So there'll be a clarity of thinking which will come because they don't crave popularity, they don't crave praise from men, they will not thus make rash, impetuous decisions for themselves or for others whom they are associated with this. There'll be this sober. When we think of sober, we think that the opposite is drunk, and a person who's drunk is not in control of themselves. They're not in control of themselves. But a person who is sober is very much in control of themselves. And that is the mind that an older person has to have. A Christian living in a godly age. Dignified, or as some versions, grave, doesn't mean they're humorless or dour people. They, they may be the type of person who goes with their grandchildren to the swings and the play park and goes on the swings and slides. I don't know if there were those types of things in first century Greek. But it doesn't mean they're a humorless type of person. But what it does mean is they have a seriousness about them. It doesn't mean they're pompous either. But they understand eternal issues. And they live with that in view in life. So there's a seriousness in how they take life. There's a dignity about that. They take sin seriously. They, they see the devastation that sin has caused and they take a serious view in holiness. There's a dignified manner about them and that results also in self-control. Now this attribute of self-control is for older men. It's implied, as we'll see in verse 3, for older women. They're not to be slaves to much wine, not be uh, at control of their tongue. It's given for the younger men as well and the younger women. So self-control goes across the board. As we thought, first century Crete was marked by a lack of self-control. People fed themselves. They were fed by their passions. They did what they felt like. We shouldn't be a people who just live by doing what we feel like doing. Well, I don't think any of us actually really does that all the time. If we did that, we wouldn't have many friends, would we? We probably wouldn't be lasting work long. So we wouldn't feel like getting up on Monday morning and going to work. But we do. But it's not a life lived by how they feel. It's a, live, it's a life lived by control of how they act and how they know they should act. It doesn't sound very spiritual. But remember, self-control is a part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit indwells a person, a part of the fruit that he produces, evidence of the Holy Spirit inside a person, is that a person is self-controlled. They are able to discipline themselves. The Spirit of God enables that. And so the older man, and we're going to think of all these other people, so it includes everyone, should be self-controlled. That's what Paul calls for. Self-control. Not just in some areas, but all areas. In fact, you cannot you cannot be self-controlled in one area and say, well, I'm not going to bother about the other area. Let me illustrate that. Uh, quite a few months ago, 
Um, Gavin Peacock. Now, some of you, if you've got really good remem- memories of him, might remember him as a, a very famous footballer in the 80s. But he's gone on to greater things now, and he's a minister of the gospel in Canada. And, and very sound in the faith and very helpful as well. But he wrote this to believers about self-control. I quote, People don't need to have a six-pack or the body of a supermodel. But we must recover the importance of self-control and how it relates to the body. Obesity, or rather gluttony, is under-addressed in the church. Sometimes obesity is a medical issue. Most times it is a sin issue. End quote. Lack of control in one area can lead to lack of control, will lead to lack of control in another area. And so we are called to live self-controlled, disciplined lives. And an older man should have developed that over years and over decades as well. It's good to say no at times when our body sort of craves to say yes. And to say yes when it says, no, I don't feel like it. To have that, by God's grace, self-control over yourself. To be disciplined in areas. I know some of the younger people are going to start to say, I bet in a minute he's going to mention get out of bed early and make your bed and do your tasks sometime. Um, But that would apply as well, it would. Those little things develop self-control. When we're young, they develop self-control. And we see them as we get older. So older men marked by self-control. But not only that, they should be sound. That is to be healthy. They have a healthy in the faith. Now, that is not a life lived of faith, the thought is here. But really, the idea here is they have the body of faith, the body of Christian doctrine. They're settled in it. They understand the, the truths of Scripture. They might not be Eric, they haven't swallowed systematic theology necessarily, but they understand and grasp and are grounded solidly in the great truths of Scripture. You know, it's a great thing, isn't it, when older men, you can meet older men, and they have that understanding of the truths of Scripture. One of the saddest things is, in my opinion, one of the saddest things is to meet people who have been decades sitting in churches but have merely filled the pew, have not embraced and not taken in that which they should have. Sound in faith... They also have love that is shown. It's the agape love. It's a love not dependent on how it is received or on it being reciprocated. They will be marked by acts of love to other people. And because of their age, it will be evident that there is a steadfastness. There is perseverance in them. The writers of the Hebrews spoke about looking to Jesus, the author of faith. And in Hebrews 12, then says this, you'll remember this verse well. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance the race 
that is set before us. Of course, we, we can think of the runner, the runner who goes and the runner who keeps going. The course might be difficult. Uh, there's twists and turns and all that type of thing. But there is this endurance in it. There is this pure perseverance in it. And that is what it figures a, looks into when we look at those who have gone on. And the older men, Timothy, uh, Titus is told to say to them, they should have this steadfastness steadfastness you can see that life might have thrown its twists and turns at them the unexpected has come at times the disappointments have come the joys have come but through it all there is this steadfastness of living for God in an ungodly culture then he says the older women the old woman to be marked by reverence in behaviour. Conduct that is appropriate for a woman of God. The, the, the word reverence does have in it um, implication for dress and speech. And all things like that. The behaviour of an older woman. And so it's not that they have to dress with a full length burqa on and things like that. That's not the idea. But the idea is a, a, a respectability, a dignity in, in clothing that is also marked by outward behaviour, a godliness that is different from the world. A godliness that can be seen. A decency on the outside that comes from an inward desire for holiness. Let the older women be reverent in that behaviour. Remember how Peter said, he says, don't let your adorning be external, but, I missed out a little bit, your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And so the older women have developed over time this reverence, which is seen in their behaviour and how they conduct themselves. Not just in their dress, but also in their words and in their actions. And their holy conduct, their reverence. Titus instruct them that their reverence will be seen by the absence of two things in particular. The absence of two things. Number one, what will be absent is this. Slander. Slander. That um, very interesting, that original word, as some of you might know, is the word diablos, which pretty much elsewhere, 95% of the time, is, is the word used for the, the, the devil. That is the exact translation, the devil. The false accuser. And so that shows us what slander is. False accusation. So a slanderer is a false accuser. They say things, make, throw lies or accusations to someone or about someone in public or in private that are false. That is the work of the devil. He was the original false accuser, wasn't he? You know, did God really say... Oh, God doesn't want you to, to eat that. Because if you do, if you do eat that, then what will happen? You'll just be like him and life will be better for you. He was the false accuser. And the slanderer 
the one who speaks is mimicking the devil and so older women have your, have your behaviour marked with the absence of slander public or private it matters and it will also be marked by not being a slave to much wine not controlled by drink at all they have the ability to control themselves they they are in control of their passions and their appetites so there's two things which will the godly behavior will be absent of slandering and also a dependence upon drink now you might be able to think what one's the more difficult one for you i would say it's more the former than the latter for most that i no, I think that'd be fair assessment, but not in all cases. And then the older women are, have a job to do. The older women, so this is now generally speaking about those who are 50 or so more. There's not a magic age, so we've got a range here. But they are to teach. Now, some people say, well, women shouldn't teach in the church. Correct. Not to a mixed company. But older women are to teach. And it can be formally. But mostly the idea is informally. They're to teach what is good. What is good in the sight of God. So their behaviour will teach others what is good in the sight of God. They will be role models. They will be role models. It's interesting, just as as a thought here, that everyone has role models who were influenced by and probably we don't realise it much, that slowly by slowly, 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 we are influenced, for good or for bad, by those we're in contact with. It's true in the lives of young people. Very true in the lives of young people and older ones as well. That those we're often in contact with, that this slow change that we have, because we see the role model that they are. And though we might not think we're teaching, you are teaching in the role that you play before others, not that you play the role that you have, you show what you are. And so older women have to have this teaching, and it can be formal instruction, it can be as a role model. And what are they to do? To train the young women. To train the young women. To show them, do as I have done. And right at the start, we're now going on to this third category then, the younger women. And we're thinking about husbands and children firstly. So what I want to say is this, which is kind of obvious, I hope, that not all young women or young men will have husbands and wives. Okay? We, we understand the majority do. That's how it works in life. But we understand also as well that some will not. So when we come to a passage of scripture like this, we shouldn't ever read into it that scripture has given us the ideal. This is what every Christian young man or young woman should aspire to. That I aspire to be married and to have children. Many will, by God's grace, Um, have a spouse and will have children but some are called to singleness we see that in 1 Corinthians 7 some do not have children we see that 
elsewhere. And so we should never ever give the impression and far less teach that marriage is God's plan for all young people and that's what makes a person complete. It is not. What makes you complete is you are in Christ. That's what makes you complete. And it may be that God provides a godly husband, a godly wife, and children. But let us never, ever do anything to make unmarried or childless feel inferior. However, most do get married and have children. And in the first century, and in the 21st century, and probably every century in between those centuries, there is a need for teaching because the design by God for marriage is under attack and always has been. And sound teaching and example, example is absolutely essential. And so the older women will be the role models and we also in conversation or in a formal teaching possibly teach younger what it means to love their husbands and their children. And of course 1 Corinthians 13 will bring, could, you could turn to that and think well, this is what love looks like. This is what love looks like. You know, many people have a definition of what they think love is. And it's far different from the biblical definition of love. Love inquires effort and hard work. Love requires effort and hard work. It's not just based on feelings. I'm not going to put any effort in for hard work. Well, it will. It will involve the sacrificial, selfless service of yourself to show love to other people. Very interesting. I was quite surprised when I was studying for this. I thought, oh, I know what the word for love will be here. Teach the young women to love their husbands. That will be the love agape. I am sure, yes, that will be what it is. But it doesn't. It's not. It's actually the love filio. Okay? Or philo. Which is more emphasizes friendship. It's not a lesser type of love, but it's the love of friendship. But love for the husband means being a helper for them. Now that's not inferiority, but it's functionality. It's functionality, okay. So the, the, the wife is to be a lover of her husband by being a helper for them. And to love her children by raising them up in the ways of the Lord. Love will mean disciplining children. Love will mean disciplining children, undoubtedly. It does mean, yes... It will be cultivating a friendship with them. And um, I'm sure most uh, mothers would trust that they would be friends with their children. But primarily their mothers who are called to train up their children and to discipline them appropriately. They are to be self-controlled, as we're thought, in desires and actions. They are to have purity. That is a sexual purity, primarily, but as a purity of life. And then we've got this phrase, they are to be workers at home, or keepers of the home. You know, the home is an extremely important place. The idea here is of uh, uh, the home uh, as a place where the family are. 
where family are, and friends and family and strangers may come into that. The idea isn't is that they're meant to have a house that could be on the covers of good housekeeping. Uh, they're not uh, necessarily. They need to be uh, cooks so they could appear on the Brit- what's that program? Great British Bake Off or something like that. You can tell I don't watch it, but um, that's not the idea. That's not the idea. But the home should be an important place. An important place for the family and for ministry towards that family and to friends and to strangers. And keeping it godly is a Christian wife's fundamental, fundamental responsibility. Okay. That doesn't mean, does not mean that they cannot have a job elsewhere. That could well be supplemental. Okay. That's okay. But fundamentally, they are to be a keeper of the house. That is God's given task for the Christian wife. And as a family goes through different phases of life, there'll be much more in time demands at other times than there would be at other times. So it's very important, very important to understand this. This is living counterculturally. I can imagine if I was at work tomorrow and I left paid employment three years ago and I was at the coffee machine tomorrow morning and someone said, what, uh, what did you do Sunday? I said, I was uh, preaching on Titus 2. And if someone said, well, oh, what was one of the things in that? I said, well, it says there that wives should be a keeper at home. That would be poo-pooed. That would be seen as old-fashioned, antiquated and nothing. And so for a Christian to understand that, for for us all to understand that, particularly for those who are wise to understand that, is truly against the culture. But the home is an extremely important place, and they are to be keepers of that home. Now, one of the best books I read um, earlier this year what was a book, and I'd exhort anyone to read it, and particularly for those who are, uh, are ladies. It's called Extraordinary Hospitality by a lady called Caroline Ash. I have a copy. You can borrow it if you so desire. It's a very thin book. But it was written from the, from the perspective of someone who had a very small house and, in her words, was hopeless at cooking. Okay? And uh, but she laid before that all some of the things that we have in our minds about hospitality and all those things are things that we have built up. We have built up in our minds, and it was a very, very helpful book that sort of took out a lots of the f- things that we have raised up in there. And so the the wife is to be a keeper at home and submissive to her husband. Submissive. That's, that's, that's functionality. That's the order that God places in a marriage. It doesn't mean that the, the wife is any less in God's sight than the husband. But there is this submissiveness of order. Okay, She doesn't have to obey her husband as a child would obey their parents. Okay, Because children are told to do things and... They just do them, don't they? Well, maybe they don't. But, uh, but they're meant to. Husbands should not treat their wives as doormats 
walking over them as if they are inferior. In fact, the instruction is, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But there is submission in functionality, in order. The husband is the head of the house. And the wife puts herself under willing subjection to that husband who should be loving her as Christ loved the church. Submission is not inferiority. Remember the son submitted to the father. And there's uh, a fancy word, the eternal subordination in functionality of the Son. That's a bit fancy, but it really speaks to how the Lord Jesus submits to the Father and has always in functionality. Order in the Godhead. So in the hum, there's a little picture there of the Godhead. A little picture of the Godhead. So a wife is to do that, recognising the headship of her husband. Why to do that? Why to do that? Well, so the family will function appropriately. So the family will function appropriately. And I would say whether that's with children or without children, for wives and husband. Do that so that the word of God may not be reviled. All Christians will see the impact of the gospel. All those in Crete would see the impact, and as we live like that today, it will be seen to be different. It will be seen to be countercultural, but it will be seen, we trust, to be godly. Young men, be self controlled, he says, moving on. So a young man is to develop self control. Really, this is the only instruction given to young men, because in verse 7, though we could apply that to young men, it's actually given to Titus. So it's very important for a young person and a young man to develop self-control, to be disciplined and not mastered by the flesh. A younger person is developed that they can say no to self when it is crying to yes. That they don't just live by their feelings. I didn't feel like doing that. I felt like doing that. It's not the way to live. Take responsibility. Be, self, be self-restrained and behave prudently. Yes, enjoy life. Enjoy life in all the ways that God has enabled you to do that. But be self-controlled. Live carefully. Know the dangers and the pitfalls. Now, the proverb says... There's a great picture given in the Proverbs of a man without self-control. Listen to this, please. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. We can picture, can't we? A city in those olden times, walled city. The attackers could not get in. It was safe, it was secure. But if the walls were broken down, anything and anyone could come into that place and attack it. And so, the proverb says, a man without self-control is like that city. Titus, show yourself a model of good works. Build up that reputation so people see you. you know, someone has said, I remember re- listening to a, a recent TV, uh, some MP had disgraced themselves, so I suppose it could be any month of this year. Um, but they said, you know, reputation is built slowly 
but demolished quickly. Reputation is built slowly, but demolished quickly. That is true. And Titus, you're going to be a leader. You're going to be a role model. You have to show yourself, you have to show others your good works. And so you'll be someone worthy to be followed. Teaches Titus, it teaches us, doesn't it, to live life carefully, to live life seriously, thinking the individual decisions we make are so important. And in your teaching, Titus, have integrity, let it be free from error. Have dignity, let it be serious, and let it be sound, that is, let it be healthy. You know, don't have teaching that is fanciful and, and can bring justifiable criticism upon it. And so Titus, that is the example for you. Be different from the false teachers. You have to be so different from them, Titus. You're going to show and teach that the gospel is proclaimed as transformative and shown as transformative. That you will teach people the gospel transforms lives, it transforms destinies, but not only that, it is seen as it transforms how you live. Finally, bond servants. Now in those days, of course, as you know, we're, we're speaking more about those who are slaves. And uh, those who are owned and controlled by masters. And there was a wide... Um, there was a wide range on this from people who were willingly that to people who were far from willingly that as well but I'm not going to go into that at this point but to understand that Paul isn't addressing the state of slavery he acknowledges it exists and deals with how Christian bond slaves should be towards their own masters, whether those masters were believers or unbelievers. So quickly, let's think about it. And if we're in any work situation, this applies to us. So if you're a young person here, you've got a paper round, it applies to you. Work in a little shop, it applies to you. You... Uh, the CEO of a company, it applies to you as well. I'm assuming there's someone above you in that position, ultimately. You're to be submissive in everything. So what your master, who you're contracted to, asks you to do, you will do in everything. There's obviously a precursor that that doesn't mean anything that is against God's word. There's a higher authority. We understand that. But, in everything you're to do that. You're to be well-pleasing. Well-pleasing. You're to have actions which cause them to have pleasure in how you work. How diligently you do your work. You may not be the best at your work. Your ability uh, means that you know there, there might be people who are better at that type of work than you are. That's just how it is. But you are to do the best that you can with the ability that you have and seek to be well-pleasing to those whom uh, you are working for. And as you work for them, don't be argumentative towards them. Don't speak against them. Don't disobey them. Don't speak ill of them. 
Don't disobey except for anything that does violate God's word. We understand that. Also, you're not to pilfer, to steal. That is stealing property, obviously. But, you know, we can steal time. We can steal time. We can, on our contracted hours, it is possible not to work them. And to go off or to not come in on time, you know, one of the big problems that employers have if people don't come in on time. Be there on time. Be there early. Be there early. Start on time, work hard, knock off on time. You know, most people get on pretty well in, in work and be pleasing to their employer if they got there early, started work on time, worked as hard as they could when they're there and finish at that time. That would put them in the top quartile of workers in this country, I'd say. The Christian is to work like that. And in it, show good faith, show that you are trustworthy, that they can trust you. And that will be built up over time. So that in everything you are adorning the doctrine of God our Saviour. You know, work gives a great potential for witness to the transforming work of the Gospel. It can mean that where other people accept bribes in the workplace, you do not. Where other people fiddle expenses, you do not. Where other people speak ill of the boss, you do not. And so when you do that, you adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. You know, the Gospel is a message of God's grace to humanity. It is a message of salvation. A message of salvation. And as we have thought, it will have impact through our daily living. A present tense from daily deliverance from sin's power that will be seen in what we say, yeah, or be heard in what we say, yes, about salvation, but will be seen that it is a reality. May God bless his words. Uh, I will pray. I will also give thanks for the refreshments that you're about to have. Let's pray. Father, we just give thanks for your goodness uh, to us this day. And Father, we have thought quite hurriedly through so many of these uh, commands, uh, these characteristics that we are called to develop. And Father, we don't want to think it's moralistic living, but Father, we want to understand that it is a living that is spirit-empowered by the grace of God towards each and every one of us. And so help us, Lord, apply those things that we are called to apply in our own lives. Father, we thank you for this day. And now give thanks for a time also of fellowship that your people can have and for refreshments that they can enjoy. We know all good things come from your hand. We give thanks for this. We come in Jesus' name. Amen.